You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today, I'm talking with Trevor Smart by UCB. Seeing through the mist, consequences of decisions in phase two. already joined the Effective Statistician LinkedIn group? Not yet? Then just head over to LinkedIn, search for the Effective Statistician and join our group. I'm posting regular content there and you can learn more about how to be an Effective Statistician and um, you'll also meet some other people there. So go to the LinkedIn group and join it. You can also find the link on the homepage, theeffectivestatistician.com. This podcast is created in association with PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practice and industry initiatives. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the really awesome video-on-demand content library and free registration to all PSI webinars. There's a lot coming uh, in the next years. The reduced rate is just £20 for non-high-income countries and also a really reasonable £95, of course, annually for high-income countries. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician and this time I'm sitting here with um, colleagues that I actually have worked together for quite some time. Trevor Smart. Hi Trevor, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. It's good to be here. <laughs> yeah, very good. And today we are talking about um, technical problem and it is in an area where I personally don't have so much experience. It's uh, because it involves much more the early phases of um, product development and my predominantly expertise in, is more in the late phases and the really late phases of <laughs> product development. So I'm, I'm really glad to have uh, Trevor here. So um, maybe Trevor, you can give you a little, a little bit of background uh, in terms of what your career has looked like as a statistician up to now in the pharma field? Okay, so currently I, I work for UCB. I've been at UCB for a year and I head up the uh, early phase development statistics. Uh, prior to that I was at Lilly for about six or seven years, again in early phase doing neuroscience and headed up a small group there. Prior to that was at Pfizer for about 13 or 14 years early phase and biomarkers mainly there. So you have been in early phase all the time? Uh, all the time when I've been in a pharmaceutical test. <laughs> I've done other things before that, but that's going back too far, I think. Okay, okay. So um, how did it come about that you entered early phase directly from the university? Was it pure luck or...? Uh, no, it wasn't directly from university. I did other things beforehand. So I was a teacher for a bit. I did some agricultural statistics. I did some environmental statistics. And then joined the pharmaceutical company. And they probably didn't know what to do with me uh, because I'd 
had this rather strange um, uh, or untypical way into the industry. And they had a few biomarkers and methodology studies they wanted to look at. And that's where I started. And that was mainly feeding into the early development. So I then started in the early development. Okay, very good. And um, you stayed there. So yeah, yeah. obviously you're quite passionate about it and you love it. So what, why, what's so interesting about that phase of drug so, development? So for me what's um, really important or I find interesting there is we're finding out about the science of the, the, the medicine. You know, does it work? Does it not work? We don't know. And it's those scientific questions rather than the regulatory questions which are key. And um, it's, there's a lot more opportunity for exploration um, and discovering things. Um, and things can often go wrong. Um, and it's quite interesting trying to work, understand things when thing has, things have gone wrong. Try, trying to, uh, to make something positive out of something which initially seems a disaster. Do you have a case study for that? Blinded case study, so to say. Um, I'm trying to think of one. Uh, it could be for yeah. yourself personally, or yeah, for, so, for so, so, uh, uh, a crossover study was done. Um, initially, the results um, looked rather poor. Um, uh, they were given to me to look at them. I analysed them in a slightly different way. They then looked quite positive but there were lots of additional learnings we could gain so that we, if we had to run this sort of study again we would do it in a quite different way mm -hmm. so that there were um, lots of learnings we could get and it wasn't a failed study in the end we, we reanalyzed it in a slightly different way and the results actually were positive although initially it was thought they were negative um, uh, but in addition to that through the need to spend time looking at the detail, the data in depth, we discovered areas where we could improve the design okay. and do things differently. Okay, very, very interesting. Okay, so um, speaking generally about uh, phase two, and that's a big topic for today, what are the typical dis uh, decisions for phase two? Well, I mean, the key thing you're trying to do is show that the drug works. But not just it works, but it works well enough and in the population you're interested in. Um, but you've got to remember you're coming from potentially phase one where it's just been in healthy volunteers, we may know a little bit about the PK, but we don't know anything about efficacy, whether it works. And so giving some signal that it works is a real benefit. But in terms of what phase three want, they don't want just a little signal that it works. They want to know it works well enough and they want a huge amount of confidence that it works well enough and they want to know what dose to use. So we've got to do both of those sort of things. So give us the earliest indication that we can that it's working and beyond that, give a, be really confident that it's not just working but working well enough and that we can choose the right dose. Um, and it's trying to match those together. And I think it's really important not to look at any study or phase two separately. We've got to look at how it fits into the whole clinical program. 
and where we're actually going to de-risk some of those things. So in the first study we may do in patients, is it important just to show it works because we're going to do some more studies before we go to phase three, or is this going to be the only study we do in phase two, in which case we have to be much more sure that it works and have confidence that we're choosing the right dose and things like that. So the questions will be very different depending on how it fits in to the whole clinical program. And so, so, so it's not so much about designing a study, it's designing the programs that may have multiple studies in it. Yes, uh, and so clearly understanding the program and beyond just phase two, so what we've had in phase one, what's happened preclinically, how much evidence we've got so far that this new indication or whatever works. Uh, because if it's a new indication, we, we may have no real idea that it works. It's just some hypothesis which nobody's ever tested. Um, and so there's often a huge amount of questions there which need answering. But yeah, how many studies are we going to do before we get to phase three? And then in phase three, what are the plans there? And is it something which we need to get to phase three as quick as possible because there's so much competition out there? and therefore we're prepared to take a little bit more risk or do we want to minimise the risk as we go along? So bearing all of those things in mind is really important when we develop the phase two. So that assumes all the knowledge that's coming from in-house but it also could come from oh, other sources, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there will be almost always other companies looking at some similar indication. You hope that you're, you're first but you may not always be first, and we can always learn from what others are doing. And, um, and that needs to be built into the plan as well. So, so basically you need to have, no, okay, at that conference most likely we'll get data from that competitor study, which will help us to make this decision. Yeah, yes, that, that sort of thing, but also know when you expect your the competitors to have their results from different studies, how that will feed in, um, and if there are any other studies which have fallen over um, and stopped for whatever reason, then that should feed into your plans as well. Okay. And so today we are specifically talking about um, a specific decision for phase two, and that's about new indication. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the problem that's about this new indication? Um, well, so, so new indications in general, there's very little known about them, and uh, um, most most compounds will fail with a new indication um, because it's a hypothesis which hasn't yet been tested. Um, so we need to test that hypothesis. Yeah. So, so the scenario is basically you have some data from and other indications, but some biological. Reasoning gives you the feeling it could work also in these other indications. Well, it's often a compound which we don't know works in anything. Okay, so then it's the first indication already. Yeah, it's the first oh, indication for it, it but, but it's, when I say a new indication, it's an indication which the company's never used before. Okay. Um, and sometimes it might be um, something where there isn't, there aren't that many other companies working on it, so there's not that many other papers to look at and read and find out about. Um, but in early phase there's lots of compounds coming through which I would say are new indications. So, so it's a new mechanism of action which needs to be tested. We don't know that the mechanism works and um, 
so we just yeah, the, the, there's a, a large chance that it's going to fail. Okay, okay. And so you have that situation, and now what's the problem there? How do we commonly make decisions in these kind of things? How do we design a study in these kind of things commonly to, to come up with a decision? If we know more about um, the, the mechanism or the indication, we'll have a lot of knowledge about endpoints and what differences we'd want to see and what competitors are already doing and if there's already standard of care out there and um, what we need to beat mm -hmm. um, to get it there. Whereas if it's completely new, um, nobody really knows that or they think that they don't know that. Um, and, and there's often a discussion about we just want to see any difference, anything will do. But that's no good if you want to design a, a study, you need to know you know, what differences you're interested in. So, so the, the problem is really you have an endpoint, you don't know very much about the endpoint, you may not even know the usual standard deviation in your, in your population, and now you need to basically power a study there, where you don't know how, how big the difference needs to be. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but usually there's more information out there than people initially think. For example? For example, well, somebody's had enough confidence in this compound to believe it goes forward. So what rationale is making them believe that this compound is going to work? So there must be something there. And you can always think about, the, from the patient perspective, okay, we're going to try and treat these patients. And you know, what's good in terms of, from the patient's perspective, um, because that can help us identify what a, a, a difference would be. Um, and so, you know, starting off at a, a very high value, a high difference, and say, you know, would we ever want to throw something with that efficacy away? Mm -hmm. And clearly say no. And then, okay, if we've got something with zero difference, we'd want to always throw it away. And gradually come in and say, okay, if it had just a small difference, are you prepared to throw that away? Oh, yes. If it had slightly smaller than the brilliant difference, would you be prepared to throw it away? No. Gradually working in until you get to a point where, uh, well, I'm not sure that we'd want that or whatever. And there'd be somewhere in the middle where you're sort of rather indifferent about whether you would want to go forward with it or not. But you get this flavour of how important it would be to continue with a compound with different differences. And from there, you can almost come up with your own operating characteristics of what you'd like to see because you've got this um, the difference uh, from placebo and, and how confident people or how prepared people would be to throw it away. Um, so so let's, let's go back to this clinical difference problem because I think that is very relevant um, problem not only in phase two it's actually uh, far beyond that so very often we think about these minimal clinically meaningful differences as one number however what you're saying is um, you can approach it from two different ends you can approach it kind of from going from zero upwards or you can approach it from a very high level and then decrease it. So, so basically look into what's clearly the 
minimal clinically relevant difference where everybody agrees that it's relevant and then you have the maximum difference where still everybody agrees that it's not relevant and then you have some space in between that's kind of a gray zone yeah, where yeah. there might be arguments about how relevant it is okay yes but it's not that that difference isn't necessarily what an individual patient would think is the minimum or the uh, difference because usually with the, the analysis we do if it's a continuous measurement we're just taking the average so there may be some patients where um, we have no effect others we have a big effect so the difference we are going to be looking for in the study is this average difference yeah, it's a group difference. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Well, very, very different. Which from is very minimum. different from yeah. somebody saying what's the minimum clinically, what you call the minimum clinically effective difference for a patient. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and the two are very different, and we shouldn't use them as being the same. Yeah, you can very easily say kind of um, if you have fifty percent of the patients that exactly had that minimum clinically relevant improvement uh, for for a certain patient and 50% wouldn't have that improvement, then on average you would have exactly half of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And that is truly only kind of, you know, if, if the standard of care doesn't help you at all, that half of it would, you know, be a big achievement. Yeah? Although from a by-patient perspective, it's not seen as yeah, relevant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think all of those sort of discussions need to be had with the team so that they understand not just these simple ideas around decision rules, but what the study is likely to give them at the end. And um, this is so getting some idea of the difference, some idea of the variability, but putting that into the design of the study and getting out operating characteristics so that you can see for any true difference what the probability of success is. Uh, that's really important, but I think we can go way beyond that and use design priors. So get some. So, so, just one yeah. step at a time. So, um, the common thing that's currently done is more kind of okay, let's set up a study, get some magical number in terms of sample size, run the study, and then the data will tell us. That's basically what happens currently a lot, isn't it? Uh, I, I would say that that used to happen quite some time ago. It still does happen now, but I think to a, a lesser extent. Um, yeah, if we can get in there earlier and design the study so that um, and we need to think about decision rules before we start the study so that we start to have some idea of how good the study is at answering the question we're trying to answer. If we just say that, well, we'll look at the data when we get it and, and it will be obvious from that. That's, I think, a disaster because usually there will be something in the data which is positive and you could almost always go forward with it. Um, another situation, rather than just um, uh, saying that we'll see the data, or we'll see it when we get the data, is say, oh, well, we don't want anything statistically significant. That's far too difficult. Instead, we'll, we'll just look for a trend uh, and, and we'll look for something um, simple. But to me, all that is saying, well, the study isn't powered. The study isn't big enough to make the decision you want. 
you're still going to have all the same risk if all you're doing is looking at the mean value and is the mean value in the right direction, which is often what some people mean when they're talking about, or we just want to see a trend. Um, if that's the case, and, but you, there's no statistics to say that that mean is significantly different or that there's a high probability that it's in the right direction or anything like that, then yeah, it, you're just making a decision without really knowing much. You, you don't know enough. And by saying that we can't use statistics to do it, we just want to see a trend, which is what I've heard, that to me is just saying that we don't want to power the study up. Okay. So, so it's kind of, we only have that budget, so yeah, it yeah. needs to <laughs> run that yeah, way or yeah, it doesn't yeah, run yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. So um, in terms of um, the other problem, I think, if you don't have a clear decision rule, then you can't really assess how likely you'll reach that, isn't it? Yes, so to design a study you need to have some idea of you know, what the purpose of the study is and how you're going to make that decision at the end because the, the whole purpose of the study is to make decisions um, and if you don't understand how the data will be used to make that decision it's very hard to design the study because it's like running a logistic regression when you don't know the endpoint. So if you have yeah, yes, no, and multiple gray areas in between, and you don't know even where you come from, then yeah, yeah. it's really hard to build your model. Yeah. Yeah. But once you have the decision rules, or some idea of the decision rules, then it makes it much easier to, to judge how good that study is, but also um, whether it's likely to be able to make the decision which you want to make. So in terms of the decision, what are the possible decisions that you can have, decision outcomes, so to say? You have, okay, go, clearly, okay, we have the right patient population, the right dose, and um, we have a clear signal to move into phase three. Um, that's one decision. The other thing is, we see nothing at all. You know, it's just everything is flatline. And um, okay, then we have a clear no-go decision. But I guess there's a grey area in between as well, isn't well, there? Yes, I mean, the, your 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 two decisions are incredibly simple, and it's never never like that. The decisions will be very much based on the clinical plan and how the study fits into that clinical plan. And so you may have just a simple go-no-go -go decision. So if it meets it, you continue. If it fails it, you terminate the compound. You could have um, uh, a go-fast, a continue, um, and, a, and a terminate. Um, so you could have various different, depending on how much uh, what the results are, how much confidence we gain through the study, there may be enough confidence there to say, okay, right, great, we'll go straight to phase three from where we are. Mm -hmm. There may be enough evidence to suggest it's working, but possibly not working well enough to jump to phase three. So, okay, let's do some further work before we jump. Um, but yeah, there's enough evidence here that we don't terminate the compound. And um, lots of variations on that sort of thing. Okay. Um, so 
uh, and, and we might do interim analyses to have um, decisions during the study so that you, if it's a dose response study, you might either increase doses, reduce doses. Um, you might have, might not change the study at all, but you just might accelerate the development of the compound. So my, in terms of you do a first interim analysis and that looks good enough, so you start a couple of other studies that would take a little bit longer, so um, know, yeah. additional talk studies or whatever. Yeah. That, that sort of thing, or potentially you could, um, because with um, some of the com compounds, especially large molecules like antibodies, the amount of time it takes to get the molecule for the next study is a huge investment. And so if we can have some early indication that it's worth putting that investment in, then we might do that early. Okay, uh, so it's so the production of the phase three standard yeah, theory. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, it's uh, I think that's the complexity of an overall development program where you have so many moving parts that you have lots of lots of decisions that you can basically build in. So coming back to this, okay, we have some knowledge because otherwise we wouldn't kind of speak about designing the study. And on, on one hand, and then we have the decision rules on the other hand. So now how do we kind of can, can put that in, into some kind of framework that, that we connect these different parts through the study together? Can you phrase that again? Because there are lots of different aspects. It's very okay. complicated, so I'm not sure. Uh, come, coming thing. back, let's say to the uh, clinically meaningful difference, and and you know we had this various perceptions that, that people can have about what's a clinically meaningful difference, and you have also some other prior knowledge um, that is not necessarily measured in your endpoints that you want to study, but could be some you know. Uh, biological marker, it could be you know, animal data, whatever, um, or maybe it's also coming from um, other companies or whatever, and now you need to design your study in terms of uh, powering it in the right way, so that you have um, the right data, but well, what do you need, to, what do you power it on if you don't have any, you know, this is so fuzzy in terms of where the, what, what's actually a difference that you want to see. I guess we need to home in on what that difference is. So um, by looking at as much as we can the literature about other compounds, uh, about what, other, what others are doing, but um, also discussing it locally within the team, trying to get their ideas. And if, it, if we don't get anything like that, then... Um, I've tried doing what's called a primer elicitation where um, I'm asking the experts and in this case it would be the experts on our compound often, so that may be internal experts, um, to give me some indication of the confidence they have in the compound. Um, and usually people are, uh, are quite confident about their compound and so we may get overestimates of this. But this can help us... You basically get a statistical framework and you basically yeah. get 
data through the prior elicitation yeah, into yeah. your statistical yeah, framework. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, so we can do that, and from that prior elicitation, it's um, we'll get uh, a distribution of our compound on that endpoint. So, how how good we think it is, but also from from asking similar sorts of questions, we get um, the the expert's opinion of what good means mm-hmm. on this endpoint. And combining both of those together, we can then help design the study. Um, and by using the prior elicitation, we can come up with a design prior. So that's um, what, our what's a design prior? Design prior. So it's um, like a prior distribution as you would use in a Bayesian analysis. So it's our current belief in the compound. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead of using it in a Bayesian analysis we're using it to simulate from, um, uh, to get data from, or just using the the distribution, um, to then simulate the study, um, and then to see what, or the way I use it, is to see what fraction of that distribution will pass, uh, and and will meet our hurdles, and what fraction of that distribution will fail. And what I would then do is look at this to see what's a, a good study. And a good study is where we would see a clear difference between what we start with, that design prior, mm-hmm. and what we end up with, which is a fraction of that design prior which actually passes. So design prior is basically um, a mixed, co- mixed distribution of um, distribution spreads clearly no-go, nothing is happening, and you have also distributions in there, in this overall mixture of the design priors that, uh, you know, these are really, really good compounds. And then you run your study, and you, you basically draw from your design prior into, into that study, and then you can see, okay, how good does study discriminate between these different original distributions, so to say. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but it also allows things in the middle because mm-hmm. I think what in the past um, there's been, a, I think, a big issue of people assuming that, that this new drug either does nothing, so it's placebo-like, or it does exactly what we want it to do and it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And the bit in the middle, which is most likely where the compound is, has often been ignored and forgotten about. Whereas if we now have a, a true distribution of where we believe it is representing all of those possible differences from the zero right up to it being really good and everything in between, then we can look at that distribution and we can see and we'll sort of have some idea of what on that distribution we want to take forward and what on that distribution we want to throw away. Um, use it as, a, as this design prior so you can then put it through simulation or other things through your, your study and you'll see what fraction of that passes and what fraction of it fails. And ideally, the bit which passes is the ones with the, the, the large differences, the things which you really want to pass, and the bits which fail are the ones which are more placebo-like. Yeah. In reality, it will never be quite like that unless mm-hmm. you have a very, very, very large study, which certainly for proof-of-concept studies or phase two studies we won't do. Um, but you'll be able to see, are you likely to be taking more of those placebo compounds forward? Yeah. Um, 
but still keeping all the good ones? Or are you likely to be removing all the placebo ones, or most of the placebo ones, but also, unfortunately, removing some of the good ones? And it depends on the compound, it depends on the situation as to which of those two would be a preference. But you're never going to have it perfect, and there will always have to be some compromise. And by looking at these distributions, so it's the distribution which you start with, and then you've got the distribution, the fraction of that which passes, the fraction of that which fails, and comparing those two, I think you can try and judge whether it's a good design or not. Is it doing what you yeah. want? So, so you, then you can play with different design parameters yeah, 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 and, yeah, and yeah, say, yeah, okay, yeah. that design is better separating, yeah. that's mo that much more costly, it, it takes that much longer to yeah. implement, and then you e can have a reasonable dis e discussion about e exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. So by playing around with all those design aspects, so you know, the sample size, the length of the study, and the decision rules, things like that, see how they impact um, your, your passing distribution, the fraction which goes forward, um, and to see, you know, is it acceptable? But also, it, it helps the team appreciate that even if you pass, it doesn't guarantee that the compound works. There is still likely to be a reasonable proportion of the placebo-like compounds which get forward, yeah. which go forward. And which you will probably accept because otherwise oh, yeah, yeah, you wouldn't yeah, yeah, need yeah. a phase three study. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it, it's what you have to accept. But there's a lot of, I've heard a lot of people say that if you pass a proof of concept study, beyond that, we know it works. We've now just got to design the right phase three study to get it to pass. Um, uh, whereas I would disagree with that. I yeah. would say we have now got more confidence that we did than we did before we did the study. We don't know it works. We just have more confidence, and we can quantify how much more confidence. Yeah, we have. yeah, yeah. I think that's the key, the key point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, do you have a case study for that? Uh, well, I've done this sort of thing on several studies, but there was one, uh, I guess, relatively recently I did, um, and it was a, a new indication. Unfortunately, I can't mention what the indication is. Um, Can you speak a little bit about what are the key features of the indication that would be interesting? Uh, so, so, so the key, some of the key features around it um, is that it was something which is going to decline over time. Okay. And um, our treatment would reduce that decline, uh, but it wouldn't necessarily improve things. Okay. Um, so one of the key things is how long do we have to wait? Uh, and what is how fast the placebos would naturally decline um, and what sort of difference we want to see um, with our drug. For, for, for our company this was a new indication. It wasn't an area we had worked in before. Um, so we had this prior elicitation and individually on a one-to-one -one basis um, I interviewed each of the experts and I wanted to do it one-to-one -one because I didn't want it to be collective viewpoint of the person who is either most senior or most dominant in the room. Yes, yeah, so uh, which we were very, very likely to have. So, so if, you know, like in usual meetings, mm. you know, if the supervisor says first what he thinks, lots of people agree, <laughs> just because it's a supervisor. Whereas if you ask each person one at a time, 
you get a really independent mm. uh, uh, answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that was good. And with this, there were two aspects I was asking: one around the confidence in our own compound, and the other one around what difference is a meaningful difference. So, so the two aspects I've, I've talked about before. How did you? How did you quantify this confidence into the compound? How does that look like? Um, so I think I asked, I'm trying to remember, two basic questions. The, the first one, um, what, what's the probability that you think this compound works? And what I'm, I'm explain that it does anything. It doesn't matter how, how, how big a difference, but the mechanism works and, that, uh, and we see some difference. But I'm not interested in that question, how big a difference. I just, you know, is that mechanism working uh, and that probability? And so um, that tells me you know, for, for the, whether it's likely to be placebo-like um, or whether it's likely to have some effect, but we don't know how big the effect is. Yeah. And then the second question was always around how big an effect it would be, what you would expect it to be, if the compound works. And so I phrase that in terms of what would be your expected value or expected difference, given that it works. And then if you were optimistic, what would it be? If you're feeling really optimistic with this compound, what's sort of the best it would be? And if you're being pessimistic, what would it be? Mm -hmm. And I also um, uh, put some probabilities around that sort of thing and the optimistic I seem to recall I said roughly about 80% probability that um, the, the top the top 20% so 80% of the distribution yeah. and the um, being pessimistic being right at the bottom end so the, the, the tail of the distribution and I, I, I explained it to the non-statisticians in a much better way than I've just described uh, with pictures and things like that and uh, I think they they grasped what I was doing, but I think using the simple English like optimistic and pessimistic, but then showing on a graph what I meant, yeah. made it much more meaningful than just saying twenty percent and eighty percent. Okay, so yeah, I think it's really important. The better you're asking the question, the more homogeneous your answers are, and the more closer it is to the statistical settings that you want to actually use it for. Okay, so how was the data looking like for, for these questions in terms of, okay, uh, meaningful differences? So, so for the meaningful differences there was very good consistency. Um, there was very little difference, I think I interviewed nine, no, no, for this one, seven experts, and um, I would say I think four or five out of those gave the same values for, for the um, differences they, they felt was clinical or meaningful difference from what we wanted to see, which is there was a lot of consistency there. When it came to the confidence in the compound, there was much more variability, um, which is what I would expect, um, but it did really show that we, we just don't know how good our compound is. We don't know um, enough about not just the compound, but um, how the mechanism it works and the time frame we need to see it, because the study had to be a certain time frame, 
ideally because we want this placebo to drop off mm -hmm. you know, the longer we leave it the better yeah. Um, yeah. but we can't wait forever so there was a limited time frame which we could have for any individual patient and there were some some in the experts thought that we probably weren't waiting long enough others thought we were waiting long enough um, but we still we have to design a study and we have to do a study and there will be always some compromises um, so we could potentially have gone out longer but we would have probably had to have fewer patients and um, the time frame it would take to do this phase 2 study would end up being too long and so people wouldn't want to invest in the compound. In terms of the clinically relevant difference, did you ask specifically for a certain time point or did you ask for multiple time points kind of? Because if you think that you have a, you really work on the slope of the disease progression, so that you know the longer you look into the disease, the bigger the differences would be, then you would basically need to say kind of uh, clinically relevant difference is a, is a function of the time. Yeah, yeah. So I, I believe that um, yeah, the study was going to be a year long and that was the maximum we could do for any patient. Um, and so that's the way I phrased the question. What would you expect to see at this time frame? Or what okay. could be a meaningful difference at this time point? Okay. What kind of outcomes did you have with the study? So, so how, how was the study then, how did you then uh, implement it into the study? Once I got that, from all the data we, we, we got there, we could come up with a design prior. And then I used the design prior with um, the, de the designs which were currently being talked about and the sample sizes being talked about and showed that it was a, a, a considerable compromise and that we weren't Yeah, we would either have to set a hurdle low, which would mean we'd have confidence that if our compound works, we'd take it forward, but we may also be taking quite a lot of placebo-like compounds forward. Mm -hmm. Or we could set the hurdle high, and in which case we would probably have confidence that we wouldn't be taking so many placebo compounds forward, or placebo-like compounds, but we might also lose one or two good compounds. Like in any diagnostic test yeah, as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and so it was trying to work out what was the priority of those uh, of that. Um, and it, it depends on the company's portfolio, it depends on this compound and, and the competitors as to whether it's more important to ensure that we never throw away a good compound. Mm -hmm. uh, or, or for this indication we don't throw away a good compound, in which case you take the risk that you are going to be taking forward placebos. Yeah. Uh, or it's more important that we don't take any placebos forward because just the, the cost of the next study is huge, so we want to be confident that it works. Um, and the two strategies will be very different. Um, and, but you can potentially build in into these decisions this sort of grey area bit or the third option bit where you might want to do an additional study. So um, if you're really pretty sure that it works, then okay, let's jump to phase three. If you think it works, but you're not so sure, so there's some still chance that it might be placebo-like, uh, a reasonable chance there, then okay, let's do another study okay. before jumping. Would you have 
pretty clear understanding of how that stacking study would look like already or do you think there's too many uh, moving parts in there that you could directly design the second study as well? Uh, I think it would be good to have some idea of what it looks like. Yeah. It's not always the case that that's possible. Um, but I think in to, to plan the program well, you need to do that. If, if instead you're just going to say, well, we're going to... It's like saying we're going to look at the data and make some decision at the okay. end. Okay, it's in the grey area, or what do we do? We need to know what we're going to do in the grey area. Okay, okay. So then we might still tweak it a little bit here and there, oh, yeah, yeah, but based yeah, yeah, on yeah, additional yeah. Uh, analysis, but generally we should have a good I, 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 I think we should have a plan, but with all of these plans, they they shouldn't be written so much in stone that we can't change it because of the data we've seen or because of what's happening externally. Because uh, it won't be just our study which changes things, it will be external data as well. Okay, okay. Very good. So, so in terms of um, implementing such a pro approach, is there anything that you could recommend to the listener to um, maybe have a read-through or an article or a case study or a presentation uh, that would be good to have a look into? The, the specific case I'm talking about, I gave a PSI talk on a, a conference in uh, this year, 2019, so there will be something on that. Um, I think there's probably a lot written on primary dissertations, a lot written on um, uh, use of design priors, but my the, the way I've done the design, uh, the primary dissertation, has been less focusing on in on the statistics and the statistical distribution, but more trying to focus in and getting team buy-in and team understanding of what I'm trying to do. And I found that almost more useful than making sure I've got a perfect, uh, a nice distribution for the prior. Um, and I've done some very simple things in Excel um, and just um, mixture models of mm -hmm. something which is placebo-like, so a very simple normal distribution based around zero um, uh, with not much variability and then the other distribution is um, a normal distribution centered around um, the average of uh, what the experts say will be the difference. Okay, okay, very good. Um, so that's giving some uh, reading to the listeners. In terms of um, changing behavior, what do you think the listener would need to do differently to be successful in, in such settings? The, the whole thing here is working with the team, getting the team buy-in, and the team understanding of, of, of what you're doing. So it's it, doing things graphically, explaining them, uh, going through them in their terms rather than our terms. Yeah. Um, Using their language yeah, rather than yeah, our yeah, language. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, uh, and trying to ensure that 
they're following what you're doing and what you're saying. Okay. Um, but I think doing it pictorially, so visually, stage by stage, um, helps no end. Okay. So really kind of showing, okay, this is a prior distribution, this is kind of, you know, if we would have that study, these kind of distributions would move forward, these would not move forward, yeah. and, and then kind of graphically show that. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. and um, especially the bit where we've used the design prior to show what fraction of the distribution would move forward, um, showing them clearly that, yeah, we've still got quite a few of those placebo-like compounds left, or, yeah. or, or the distribution covers that area. Um, is that what we really want? And of course they will say no. Um, and then try, okay, so, okay, how do we get rid of it? Um, and what can we do differently? Ah, but look, if you do that, then it means that you're going to be killing your good compounds as well. Um, and getting a greater understanding that we have to compromise. Yeah. And okay, where are we going to compromise? And it's that discussion with the team which is really important, whereas in the past I felt it's been okay. Team asked, study to be powered, here's the difference, here's the variability, go away, come back with a sample size, tell me how much it is, that goes in the protocol, done and dusted. There's no understanding of what it means and how likely we are, given our compound coming forward, that we're going to be making a good decision. Okay. Awesome. Thanks so much for this uh, really, really nice interview. Um, I think we covered a lot from kind of generally what phase two is about. We, we talked about how to come up with a clinically relevant difference. And uh, I really like this notion of, you know, this minimum relevant difference and the maximum irrelevant difference and that you have something in between. That's, I think, is really, really helpful. Um, Prior elicitation, I think, is not only helpful in this area, but in, in lots of other areas as well. And so, and, and this decision rules are also kind of a blueprint for decision rules that we can have in many, many different situations. And um, phase two and the new indication in terms of phase two is, is one setting there. And so in the end, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a common theme throughout the podcast recently is that you need to work closely with uh, within the team uh, making sure you take people along and and communicate effectively so that you can move forward and get to good decisions overall good okay and any final word regarding that other phase phase two is a great place to be uh, in terms of working in the industry um, it's where some of the, it's where the compound will live or die, basically, and, and we can have a huge influence on making what I would hope to be good decisions. Um, and there's a lot we can still do. Awesome. Thanks so much, Robert. Thank you. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain who helps with the show in the background and thank you for listening. Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. And don't forget, 
Join the LinkedIn group and share your experience being a statistician, what you're learning, where you're struggling with. Join the community. So, like always, I'm ending with reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.